All right, church. I know there's been a few announcements. How about we stand up, have a bit of a stretch, and then give a warm welcome, standing ovation now, for our brother Aaron T. <laughs> Good morning, church. How's everyone today? Cool. So it's been a while since I've been up here. I think it's actually been about two years, um, probably in large part because of COVID as well. And when Joe came to me in December, um, he asked if I'd like to take one of the Sundays. And um, I thought to myself, well, it's always a huge blessing to me, but it's a, it's a decent amount of work. Um, but, you know, this guy really deserves it. And um, Preaching week in, week out like he does, um, it, it's, just, it's just an immense amount of work. And as you do more, it's actually harder because you, you have to have more material. It's, it's, it's a lot easier when you're just kind of doing it once. Uh, little did I know that I thought he just kind of wanted the break. And that's what I was saying. You know, he deserves that. But little did I know, actually, it was so that he could go off and officiate a wedding. And so he's, he's completely nonstop, and every time I'm up here, it gives me like a fresh and new appreciation for what he does. Now, super awkwardly, he's here this morning, and I didn't know that until this morning. And so what, what, I, ha- what I actually wanted to say was I wanted to give a big shout out, and so now this feels really strange, but I wanted to give a shout out to Joey's family and just everyone else, especially in the COVID time, who has been really supporting us and, and our family, like um, Nick and Joe's family as well. And um, yeah, the next time you see him, which I guess is now, <laughs> um, yeah, just, gi- just give them thanks because they, they really do support us. <laughs> cool. Why don't we open up in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for giving us life, that through all things, the good and the bad, you always stand by us. Because of your love and sacrifice for us, we have life and life everlasting. I pray today that you would help me to engage with all who are listening and that you would drive your word home, that you'd prepare hearts and minds to be ready for your message. And I also pray that you'd help me speak your truth and articulate it in a way that people would know how much you love them. Take stage this morning, Lord, and let your word go forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So around early last year, I remember I was starting to I was, I was winding down to go to bed, and I've kind of got this um, little process that I do before I go to sleep, and it's the sort of thing that the sleep specialist would tell you absolutely not to do, and that is kind of using your devices. And so I've, got, I've kind of got this, um, this process which kind of weans me off the tech for the night, and three things will happen as the night progresses on. The first thing is the piece of content that I'm, uh, that I'm viewing or reading will start to get shorter as the night goes on. And then the device I'm using will start to get smaller as that night goes on. And then the proximity between me and the bed would start to get closer as the night went on. So it'll start like something like I'll be in front of the TV with the biggest device. And, um, and this, is the, this is actually, if anyone knows my house, this is the room that's furthest away from my bedroom. And um, I'll be watching something on a streaming service. So I might be watching... Um, a documentary, a couple of episodes of a series, and that'll be like 45 minutes per piece. And then kind of once I'm done on that, I'll progress to like the tablet phase, you know, where I'm, where I'm in a room that's not as far away 
as a TV room is, but I'm not at my bedroom yet, and I'll start to convert to things like YouTube. Um, there's a couple of channels I like to watch. There might be 20 minutes an episode. I'm kind of like inching my way closer as the night goes on. And, and then there's a point where it becomes a phone. So I've kind of like, I'm in my bedroom now, and it's kind of like the, the going to bed process. So I'll start to brush my teeth, and you know, you phone will be there, and I'll start to sit on the side of my bed, and then there'll be a point where I'm sitting in bed, and I'm still using my phone, and, and the content is now even smaller. It's kind of like um, emails, Instagram stories, and reading news articles. Um, it's it's kind of like bite-sized content, a couple of minutes um, for each piece. And then finally, finally, I'll put the phone down. It's 1 to 2 a.m. in the morning. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to sleep. Heads on the pillow, eyes start to close, and I think to myself, did I hit my fitness goals today? Apple Watch. A few seconds, then sleep. So the device gets small, everything goes, I, I know, it's a terrible process. Um, you don't need to tell me that. Sleep specialists don't need to tell me that anymore. Does anybody else do this? Or, or is, it, is it just me? No? Okay, I, I'm fine. I'm the crazy one. And, and Amanda thinks I'm crazy too, because all those things can be done on a single device, and they can be done from any location. But, you know, she's married to me, so she's stuck with me now in sickness and in health. <laughs> anyway, so on this particular night, I was up, and I was up to the news consumption segment of the evening, right? And I consume the news in probably the worst possible way. I take this lazy route, and I use a, like, a news aggregator app. And what that does is it kind of looks at what you read, it finds like-minded people like you, and then it feeds you more of the same stuff. And, and, and it's really bad, and I recommend against it, because it's, it's not the way to get broad and good coverage of the media. And the worst thing is, is um, it clusters you with the same people every time someone fails for a clickbait, something that tries to get you to click in. And so every time they've done that, it'll feed more of that to me, because I'm a like-minded sucker like they were, and I'll click the same thing. Anyway, I remember this particular night, because I was about to put down the phone after reading a couple of stories, and I saw this news article, and, and I couldn't pass it up. It's just one of those catching headlines. And once again, it's, it's probably something that was fed to me by the algo. But I knew it was actually going to be a bit of a disturbing story. And so um, I instinctively knew that at this time of night, it was better to go to bed. So responsibly, I put the phone down, and I went to sleep. But if any of you really know me, I didn't do that at all. Instead, I read the whole article because, of course, I did, right? Um, and I was right. I did regret it. And in a strange, ironic twist, here I am today, and I'm about to share that story with you. And if you're streaming this from home, you, and you don't feel like hearing a potentially a little bit of a disturbing news article on a nice Sunday morning, I give you permission to put me on mute for two minutes. Uh, but if you're here with me today, live, uh, just Buckle in, I guess. So, according to this news article, there was this guy. And apparently, he'd been reflecting upon his life. And he'd come to this conclusion that he hadn't really lived a good life. And he was so convinced that he was going to hell. When he reflected more in his life, um, he realized as a child, he actually considered himself quite good. Um, but as he got older life kind of presented more opportunities for him to do things that weren't right, to be kind of tempted and a little bit corrupted. And, and I guess he had taken it up because he's 30, he was 32 years old, as I mentioned, and he was just so sure that it was on his path to hell. 
so thinking about this, he found that there was only one thing in his life that he deemed as perfect and pure, and that was his 10-year-old son. Um, and Sandra's got a slide. It's this kid. So he puts two and two together and realizes that his son might be perfect and pure now, but as he gets older, he's going to go through the same things that his father did. So he's pondering how he can prevent his son going down a similar hellbound path like he did. And so two weeks later, he asks his wife to go to the supermarket for a while, and he sits his son down and he starts to explain this conundrum to him, that, you know, he's not a good person, that over time, life has corrupted him, and that he thinks his son will go down a similar path. And he explains to his son the only way that he can avoid this is if his son goes to heaven now while he's still faultless and innocent. And remember, this kid is, he's 10 years old. He's probably around grade four. So his father explains this to him, that he has to kill him in order to ensure his salvation. And he spends a bit of time with his son. He apologizes profusely. He hugs and kisses him. And his son responds verbatim, word for word, Daddy, I'm sorry too. Then the dad proceeds his plan and asphyxiates his son. And once it's finished, he then calls the police to tell them what he's done. He's arrested, he's tried as not mentally ill and in control of his actions and convicted of murder. And you know, when I read this story, like I was absolutely furious. Like I was in disbelief. I was, I was deeply, deeply saddened and, and kind of angry at the same time. And, and my heart really went out for this kid, even though I don't even know him. And I, I remember actually having to fight back tears because I didn't want to wake Amanda up and have to kind of explain that I read this news story. Um, and it, it's strange. Like, I've always thought of myself as quite desensitized to the news, and, and that's not a good thing, by the way. It just kind of shows how depraved that we can be as a society at times. Um, but, you know, in the last couple of years, just in the COVID time, we've actually lost six million people to COVID, and that's more than the population of Singapore. So it's a lot. And my heart goes out to all those people who have had hard times and those who have suffered. But in contrast, I don't think I re I've reacted to COVID in the same way that I've reacted to this story. Um, I haven't asked God why. Like, I haven't pressed God for an answer. Why did he let COVID happen? But I remember for this news article, and that night I did ask. I was like, God, why would you let something like this happen? Like, it, it's just, you know, it's just so painful. And I'm not too sure why this story mattered so much to me. Like when you read it alongside the rest of the news, there's just so many horrendous things and so many things that are so much worse. But this one really struck a nerve. Maybe it's because it seems so senseless or because he's, this guy's understanding of God and salvation was so twisted. Or maybe it's because I'm a parent of young kids and, and I just can't imagine a father who loves his son doing something like this. Now, I'm not someone who often seeks an explanation from God like um, um, on why things has happened. Like these, these kind of call-outs are kind of rare. I probably can remember about like maybe a couple of times I can count on my fingers. Um, it's happened. But the main thing is, is that God doesn't really owe me an explanation. James 4, chapter 14 says, Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, we ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And this brings me to today's verse, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now for today, I want to talk about this verse in relation to tough times. Times where we're hurt or confused or we're looking for answers. The reason for this is in good times, this verse comes across great. You know, like, God is awesome. He's got big plans for me. I'm expecting this in life, and because his ways are better, he's going to give me this. And it's, like, super encouraging. But on the flip side, though, when we're going through some really tough times, reading this through pain and seeking these answers, um, it can be very difficult. It can feel a little bit dismissive of the situation and not really helpful, even though you know it's true. For example, let's say you're grieving the loss of someone that you love. It's hard to accept that somehow this is part of God's superior thinking and his superior ways. And somehow it's in the best interest of us and the best interest of the kingdom in general. And so while this statement is a blanket truth and it and actually stands on its own feet without context, because obviously God, his ways and his thinking is greater than ours, um, it's actually really helpful to look at it through the lens and through the context that the Bible has it. So let's talk about that. This verse comes actually quite late into Isaiah. It's all the way in the back in chapter 55. And so if we do a quick recap on Isaiah, the book starts with a message of judgment that is coupled with hope. And so what happens is we see the events play out if you read through Isaiah. There is the rise of Jerusalem, and then there's the fall, and that part's the judgment section. And then afterwards, that comes the message of hope. So in verses 49 to 55, we are introduced to a servant who is going to come and accomplish and fulfill this hope. So just to be clear, when we hear about his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, this is falling in the hope section, not in the judgment section. In fact, the same section includes probably one of the biggest statements of hope in the entire Bible. Isaiah 53, just a few chapters before. You, you've definitely heard it before, but let me read it anyway. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was, tr he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his word, wounds we are healed. That's right, it's talking about the servant, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus. And then we get to our chapter in chapter 55. So when we read Isaiah 55, 8-9, his thoughts been higher than our thoughts and his ways been higher than our ways. The context is not intending to be dismissing of our concerns or condescending our feelings or reprimanding, reprimanding the way that we think. Um, but the context is one of giving hope. The verses that come actually directly before it, verses 6 and 7, read, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them, to our, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. So this is about forgiveness. It's about a second chance, a second chance that we don't deserve, but we get because his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. It's kind of like saying, whatever you're going through now, it might not feel okay, but trust me, it's going to be okay. I've got this worked out. It's complex. I know you don't get it now, but it's going to be okay. But like I mentioned earlier, 
if you've uh, lost someone or you've been given a terminal diagnosis or you're, you're suffering in some sort of way, it can be difficult to find comfort in just this verse because it's asking us to trust him without any explanation to our suffering. And it's also asking us to humble ourselves and realize that no matter what we think, his ways are better. So for that reason, let's go somewhere else in the Bible where it actually talks a little bit more about suffering. And that's going to be in the book of Job. Now, Job is a really long book. It's 42 chapters. And so I'm going to give a quick recap. And I know a lot of people here might be familiar with the book. But the reason I want to um, do this recap is if you've ever tried reading the Bible and, and you don't really understand about the book, the first thing you need to do is you need to get a book summary. Trying to read parts out of a book or read verses in the Bible, it's, it's like trying to put a huge jigsaw puzzle together without actually knowing the final picture. And they have jigsaws like that. And so you kind of pick up a piece and you, you, you see, okay, it's red. And then you don't know if there's one red section or 50 red sections. So you can't just group all the reds together and expect to, that it'll all link up. And, and the Bible's a little bit like that. Like if you pick out a, a verse or you pick out a, a few verses, you kind of, if you don't know where it fits in the picture, it's really hard to actually understand. It's hard to keep motivated to read and it's hard to get context out of it. So we're actually going to do this with the whole book of Job, but don't worry, I'm going to do it in a condensed fashion. Um, so let's go. Let's start up. In a time unknown, but likely during Genesis, there is a man named Job, and he's got life pretty figured out. He's got 10 children. I don't know what you're thinking, but in those days, 10 children was considered a very good thing. He's got this booming agricultural business. Once again, I know what you're thinking, but in those times, that was considered a very good thing. And he also has plenty of servants. I don't know what you're thinking, but in those times it was considered a very good thing. And so he's viewed as pretty much one of the most blessed people on earth. And he is blameless and upright before God. And then this really strange scene comes in. Something that, um, that's very different to what you might read in a lot of the Bible. So we'll continue by reading on from Job 1 verse 6. One day the angel came, angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and the herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in, the power, is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. So Satan goes ahead and does so, taking away everything that Job had, his children, his servants, his livestock. But despite all this, Job doesn't charge God with wrongdoing. But he's been hit hard. He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, he falls down in worship. And, you know, that sounds really extreme, like to tear something that, that's probably the last thing that you've got left. But he's lost all his children, his support, and his financial security. On top of that, he's a good person, God's first choice. One who would sacrifice burnt offerings every day for his children, just in case they had unknowingly sinned. Now, unfortunately for Job, he's thinking he's hit absolute rock bottom. But the truth is, he's only kind of hit rock middle. 
Because the very next day, or the very, in, in, sorry, in the subsequent day, a similar scenario plays out again because, because he didn't curse God. Only this time, God allows Satan to harm Job to any extent, with the exception that he doesn't kill him. So Satan goes and does his worst, afflicting Job with painful sores from his head to his toes. And these sores were described as so bad that it was better that Job got cracked pottery and scraped them off than let them sit there. And so now he's at rock bottom. But through all of this, Job continues to remain upright, but he's mourning his great loss and suffering. And this closes out the first part of Job. So there's three parts. This is the first part where we, where we hear about his suffering. So from reading all this, we know how the situation arose. We know how his suffering came about. But the book hasn't actually explained why God operated in this way. Um, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but it's worth calling out. The book actually never does, and neither does the rest of the Bible. So the second part is actually the largest part of Job, and it covers all the way from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37. And in this part, Job is having dialogue with his three friends, which are introduced to you, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Here they take turns chapter by chapter to make sense of why God has allowed this suffering to befall on Job. But basically, the format of the dialogue is very similar. It starts with a premise, and from that premise, conclusions or conclusion or many conclusions are drawn from that. And so Job's got his version of events, and he says this, I've done nothing wrong, yet I'm suffering. Therefore, God must not be interested in running this world in a just manner. His friends actually refute this claim, and they say, they're all saying a similar thing, but they say, no, 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 God is just, and therefore God runs this world in a just manner. And if he runs this world in a just manner and you're suffering, you must have committed sin. And here they go back and forth with Job, and Job's proclaiming his innocence, and, and they're actually like layering their talk. So it's Job, his friends, Job, his friends. And this actually goes um, for about 30 chapters long. And I actually want to draw out some verses to, to, to show the structure they built, but there's not really a neat bundle of verses that elaborates all this out. It's actually huge sections of dialogue that when you read, you pick up the themes and you, you can piece together. Um, but basically, they, they're just doing it one by one, a bit like a high school debate. And then this strange person named Elihu steps into the scene. And he's strange because for a very detailed and chronological book, he's never actually mentioned before this. He's, um, he's not introduced in the time of Job's suffering. He's not introduced at the time of the three friends. Um, but in fact, he kind of slots in seamlessly. And if, if you aren't really paying attention to their names, you might have actually confused him with one of the original three friends. But it turns out he's the youngest, and so he's been waiting his turn to speak. And over this time, he's built up some frustration at the ramblings of the other, of the other guys. So Elihu takes his turn to speak, and he postulates the same starting premises as the friends does. He says, God is just, and therefore he runs this world in a just fashion. But instead of concluding simply that Job is being reprimanded, he suggests that Job's sufferings may not be punishment for sin at all. But rather, it could be God speaking to him through suffering to humble Job, thus leading him away from sin in the future. Or it could be to help Job grow in character. Or it could be to elicit Job a greater dependence upon God. Once again, I did want to pull out the individual verses, um, but he actually elaborates this over six, verse, uh, over six chapters. So give it a read. 
But once Elias finished speaking, Job actually doesn't respond to him. So in the past, whenever someone said something, Job had responded back. And it's, I don't know if it's either he didn't want to or if he didn't get the chance to, because in the very next chapter, God comes and speaks to Job out of a storm. So remember, we're at this point of the story where Job has now accused God of being unjust and has demanded an explanation for his suffering from God. And this concludes the second part. So part one's the suffering. Part two is why is this suffering happening and his little debacle. So the third and final part of Job starts in chapter 38, verse 1, where God speaks. So let's um, quickly take it up from there. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this who obscures my plans and words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then God starts to take Job on this universal journey. He grills him with all types of random questions on physics, astronomy, biology, and so forth. Like, he asks Job if he understands the origins of lightning, or can he actually manifest lightning himself? He asks Job what's at the bottom of the deepest depths of the ocean, or if Job has strangely witnessed a deer giving birth. He has even, or even, even if Job has experienced death himself, he talks about constellations, the dimensions of the earth, and other questions around the cosmos. And the things that he brings up are so out of comprehension for someone who would have been living in the times of Genesis. In fact, some of these things that God asks are incomprehensible for people today with our level of education and our advances in science. Probably one of the best and most interesting parts of this is verse 21, where God actually uses sarcasm. Here God is questioning Job about light and darkness and the origins and what happened when the earth was created. And then he's kind of like, oh wait, and this is verse 21 verbatim, surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years as if Job were there in the creation of the earth. And this actually continues on for two chapters. Then um, God kind of steps it up a notch. He challenges Job and he asks Job if he thinks he can take the role of God, meaning if he understands the laws of heaven, whether he thinks he can establish them on the earth, and by extension, if he thinks Job could deliver effective justice, which means would he be able to punish every misdeed by every single person immediately on the spot to be recognized by everybody else with the correct magnitude or correct level of punishment? all without disturbing the fine balance of what's supposed to happen in God's plan. All is a sort of instant justice with no butterfly effect. Basically, God is trying to explain to Job that this world and what happens in it is way too complicated to ever comprehend. Not for God, but for people like us. And then God extends this analogy into two great beasts. He's talking about the behemoth and Leviathan, you might remember. And these beasts are described as creations of God who are meant to be an analogy of the world we live in. So from chapter 40 to 41, you can read these creatures are like these amazing, huge, majestic, powerful, and like good creatures because they're created by God. But that's only one side of the coin. On the other side, he also says that they're dangerous. You know, they're untamable, and they deserve to be revered. And what God is alluding to here is that the world we live in, it's big, it's beautiful, and there's so many great things about it. But on the other side, this world is not safe, and it deserves our respect. And I think Christians 
especially struggle with this, this, this concept, because we know that we are God's children. We know that he loves us and he has what's best for us, but we don't expect he'll let bad things happen. But what we need to realize is that since Genesis 3, the fall of man, this world was not designed to prevent suffering. Um, this world was not actually designed to, designed to prevent death, and in fact, this world wasn't designed to prolong life. And this is a very hard concept to grasp because unless you are all the time 100% kingdom-minded, almost everything we see and everything we do and everything we're striving towards is geared to us preventing suffering and trying to prolong our life. Anyway, coming back to Job, after God has revealed these things, Job recognizes his position and he responds as such in chapter 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's at this point that Job too recognizes that he's well out of his depth. And he starts to understand what we now know as Isaiah 55 verse 8. He didn't have it at the time. God's thoughts and his ways are truly on a different level. And this might seem obvious to us now, but once again, recognizing and trusting this through suffering isn't easy. It took Job this whole process to get there. And don't forget, he was God's number one pick when it came to blameless and unrighteous pe and upright people. So after all this dialogue, we get to a closing epilogue. God tells Eliphaz that he and his friends, Bildad and Zophar, had not actually spoken true of God and need to seek repentance. Remember, what they had concluded was that Job must have done something wrong to have endured this suffering. But what we now know is that, that simply isn't true. They had just grossly, grossly oversimplified the complexity of God and how he runs his world. And they've just drawn these conclusions from a simple premise. We also learn that God rebuilds Job's family and blesses his latter part of life, even more so than before Satan had interfered. And Job ends up living a long and full life, many years. But possibly the most interesting part in all this dialogue is that God is, in all the dialogue that God has with Job and his friends, and what we read in the epilogue is that the Bible is mysteriously silent on this guy, Elihu, the young guy who spoke last with some new ideas. On one hand, God doesn't state that his views are correct. But on the other hand, he doesn't refute his claims and he doesn't rebuke um, him like he did the other, uh, the other guys. In fact, Elihu gets no mention at all. But while God doesn't directly agree with him in the book of Job, there are some other areas in the Bible that kind of shed a bit of light and give a bit of credibility to the things that Elihu was saying. So it's worth us having a quick look at why he thought suffering sometimes happens. The first part, as mentioned earlier, Elihu thought that it might be a warning to avoid future sin. And so in Psalm 119, 66 to 68, it says, teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Here's the punchline. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. The second thought that Elihu had around suffering and why it might happen is a growth in character. 
Um, in First Peter 1, chapter, uh, verses 6 to 7, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And the punchline, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, this person, so in this case, they were able to prove their faith through their suffering and, and build their faith. And the third reason was, is Elihu believes that suffering may come as a way to elicit greater dependence on God. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that, when we, despaired, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So here they're, they're thinking that they're going to lose their life, but instead it pushes them to put their reliance upon God. And if you go through the Bible, there are actually many other circumstances where people have gone through hardships for various reasons. One such example is in John chapter 9, where Jesus meets a man who is blind from birth, and his disciples ask him, they're like, Rabbi, was it him or his parents who sinned that this guy was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The point I'm trying to make is that the topic of suffering and hardships is very complex. And yes, a lot of the times, troubles kind of are self-inflicted by people doing dumb things or being irresponsible or committing evil acts. But a lot of the time, it has actually nothing to do with that. And looking at the story of Job, I think God sums up best in his first words to Job as he speaks through the storm, when he says, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And the last part is key, without knowledge, because we live our lives completely blind and oblivious compared to an omniscient God. A good way to think of life is actually like being a pilot. So Sandra will have my second slide up here. And what you'll notice is this is actually a cockpit of an A380, an Airbus A380. Now for a commercial plane that can hold about 850 people, you may notice, oh, dropped a page. That's right. You may notice something that's a little strange. You may see that, um, there is actually not much windows there. So essentially they're flying this plane and they're essentially flying it blind. And so you might think, well, that, that's, that's, that's slightly a bit dangerous. But the thing is, there's actually a really good reason for that. The pilots, when they're flying these planes, they can't actually see out the window very much. And so, what you'll find is that they're actually, when, when they're kind of landing, they can see the ground a little bit, and um, if, they're, if, they're, if they're banking, if they're turning, it can bank about 30 degrees, they can see a bit of the water, maybe they can see some of the sea lights, and they can also see other planes in the air as the other planes are flying by. Um, the planes have lights on them, they've got a green light on one side, a red light on another, so if you see a plane, you can kind of tell which direction it's going, if it's coming at you or going away, based on the order of the lights if they're on the left and the right. But that's about it. That's all they can really see. And so when, and so 
the way they actually keep the plane safe is actually by using the instruments panel. They're actually looking at all the gauges and the dials and the many things. You can see the majority of the screen there, the majority of the co cockpit, is all tools and instruments and, and things they can read. And that will tell them where their plane is, how fast the plane is going, um, where, where all the other planes are, they can contact with the communications tower, they can contact other planes. And this is what ensures that they are safe. And if you just give me, sorry, one second, I'll try and grab those pages that I dropped somewhere. <laughs> That's okay. Let's not, let's, let's not worry about those. I have no idea where they would be. It's only two pages. Um, so the thing is, kind of like these pilots, we, we are absolutely flying our life blind. Like, if you think about how we sit in relation to God, we kind of live in one place in time, and we kind of only live in one, like, time zone, and we only live with one perspective of what we see. Like, we, we don't know the future, we barely can recall the past or even interpret the past correctly. And so, kind of just like um, Job, we're a little bit narrow-sighted when it comes to what we understand and what we don't understand. And so, basically, in summary, the, all the things that I kind of talked before come down to a couple of points, and these points I just want to summarize in. This world is a really dangerous place. It's not safe, it is majestic, it is great. But this world isn't about avoiding suffering and it's not about prolonging our life. Um, just like Job, there are times when we won't understand, even if we've done everything right, um, we've, we've, um, we've in a sense thought we've kind of lived correctly and these things that might happen might seem so random and we just don't understand why this suffering happens. The thing is, is this world is insanely complicated. Um, and, and finally, I just want to say that Isaiah 55, chapter 8 and 9, when it says that God's ways and thoughts are higher, it's not meant to be reprimanding us, it's not meant to be um, a, a discouraging thing, but it's meant to give hope. But I do want to say that if you know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, times, there will be times that are tough. There will be times where we don't understand what's going on. But even though it may feel like your, your suffering might last a lifetime, or maybe it really does last a lifetime, the truth is it is just temporary. And the truth is you will get through this. God will help you to overcome. Thank you. Let's just close in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the great things you do, and we thank you so much that you're always here to support us. Lord, I pray that if anyone here is suffering today, that you would just give them comfort, just give them some of that peace that transcends all understanding. And Lord, you know, one day all of us will go through times of suffering. I pray that we can reflect upon you. I pray that we would recognize that, that this world is... is um, is not meant to be an easy cruise by. It's not meant to be somewhere where there isn't tough times. I pray that we'd be able to look on your word and we wouldn't be discouraged when we don't know why. We wouldn't be discouraged if we don't understand why we're going through these things. But instead, Lord, I pray that 
the family of Christ would come upon them, that we as a church would be responsible. We would pick up on this and help people through. We pray that you would also give your comfort and you would also um, take us through. And we know that one day, Lord, that we will overcome all situations. We thank you for your love and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.